Hello and welcome to the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. Keep up with the twists, turns, and acceleration in the mobility industry between episodes with SAE's incredible SAE Smart Brief. Click the link in the show notes to subscribe and receive the latest industry articles, updates, news, and announcements straight to your inbox. On today's episode, I sat down with Jack Wiest, Intel Fellow at Intel Corporation, to discuss how a machine should never make a bad decision, the use of crowdsourcing data to map cities around the world, and why passenger boredom is the key to safety success. And away we go. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Jack. Thank you, Grayson. Happy to be here. I'm really happy to, for you to share your insights around safety with our audience because you have these incredible, remarkable insights into safety. And to kick the podcast off, Jack, how does Intel think about safety? Well, at Intel, safety is, is what drives us in everything that we do. Um, if you just look at the numbers, um, we've become desensitized to it. A uh, hundred people a day uh, lose their lives as a result of humans behind the wheel. You think about any other kind of consumer product that we use on a daily basis that has that sort of that kind of tragic outcome, we wouldn't you know, we wouldn't be allowed to own cell phones at all if uh, if that's what happened um, with the use of those devices. So for us, uh, reducing that number and saving lives is what motivates us every day, and uh, it's an honor to be able to work in this space and and have the opportunity to, for such a positive societal impact. Why do you think, as a society, uh, somebody perishing in a crash doesn't really affect us, and we don't think? twice about it. it's just that it's been happening for so long it's this is a horrible term to use but it becomes commonplace yeah i think that's part of it i think um uh you know and then to, in contrast when there's a fender bender you know with an autom- automated vehicle test uh, vehicle it's front page news sometimes um and so i think uh, we have become desensitized to it for so long um, that we've accepted it as sort of just part of the cost, if you will, of our modern transportation system. But I think uh, we have an opportunity to say no more and that we can have an efficient transportation system uh, with safety uh, and we don't have to, to lose lives in the process. Extremely valid point and an extremely important point because nobody wants to lose a, a loved one in, in a crash on their way to the grocery store or their way to school or to going to a job. And I'm happy you brought up the front page news around when there's a fender bender or an incident with a self-driving car. So it raises the question, how safe is safe enough when it comes to deploying autonomous vehicles? Yeah, it's an excellent question because, um, you know, if the only acceptable level of safety for an autonomous vehicle is zero, Uh, meaning there'll never be any accidents in autonomous vehicle, then they'll never deploy. And we're back to accepting 100 people a day, you know, losing their lives because of humans behind the wheel. So it's a really important question that that really isn't for industry to answer, uh, but really for industry, government and society to talk openly and honestly about together. Um, We do have to figure out how safe is safe enough because the act of driving is inherently risky. The safest human driver would be the one that never drives. And so the safest automated vehicle would be the one that never leaves the garage. Um, But we have a unique opportunity uh, to set proactively uh, an acceptable level of safety for these products in advance of their deployment. Uh, And that's a key uh, message that we've been talking about with government regulators, the industry and the public um, so that we can have an open and honest discussion and dialogue about this. And so there's some technical measures on how we can do that. But the point is we can have that conversation and we can set and define what level of safety is acceptable in these devices uh, before they're deployed. And we should do that. 
Is the technical measure mobilize um, responsibility sensitive safety approach? Is that where that's coming from, from the technical aspect? Yeah, we contributed uh, our safety model openly and transparently to the industry to start this important discussion. Um, and the, the trick about RSS is just like human drivers, uh, we drive based on making reasonable assumptions reasonable worst case assumptions about the behavior of other road users. There's a lot of times, for example, that we might be driving 30, 40 miles per hour uh, next to a, a sidewalk with a pedestrian on it. Uh, that's incredibly unsafe if you think about it, but it works. Why does it work? Because we as a human driver make an assumption that if that pedestrian is on the sidewalk, they're going to stay on the sidewalk. Why do we assume that they're going to stay on the sidewalk? Because we're looking at their angle of pose and their angle of velocity and things like this. And we make reasonable assumptions about behavior of pedestrians in those environments. And so it's those reasonable assumptions that allow humans to be able to navigate safely in the environment. And so RSS as a formal model allows you to bake in these reasonable worst case assumptions and strictly define then the boundaries of what is safety and what should the automated vehicle be able to uh, protect against and operate within. So it kind of sets that level of acceptable risk based on physics. You know, we're not going to change the laws of physics anytime soon. So these govern the behavior of all road users. Uh, and so RSS as a model allows you to really model and understand what is that level of acceptable risk uh, as represented by these reasonable worst case assumptions about other road users. The model's a really good model. It's a really positive model. And then, in my opinion, on the other side of that model is you have consumer education where your model's taking in these, these assumptions of somebody might fall over or a child's going to kick a ball on the road. And then on the other side is that when to your general public has to understand that the vehicles don't get distracted. They're not saying, oh, I'm feeling drowsy or tired. I'm going to drive home. Do you? How do you combine the RSS model along with, with the practicalities of the vehicle does not drive distracted and its number one goal is to get you to and from your your destination safely so when the public looks and says okay intel's taking this approach and they're making it really accessible so i can understand it not just for technical industry yeah i think uh from a uh design philosophy standpoint um when you think about the benefits of a machine driving the idea is is the the machine should never make a bad decision right that's the point <laughs> you know humans get distracted we start playing with our phones um and uh, we make poor driving decisions. So the goal for an automated vehicle, if you think about uh, how often should uh, it make a bad decision, the goal should be that it never does. Uh, and so using a formal model like RSS that can be formally verified uh, allows you to have a correctness proof of the safety model to say that, you know, unless there's a bug in the code or the you know wheel falls off the car or something like that, the automated vehicle is always going to make safe driving decisions according to the safety model. Uh, and so that's why we've published it openly to get feedback. Uh, the rules of RSS are things that are familiar to any human driver. Things like, you know, don't hit the car in front of you. Make, maintain a safe following distance. Um, don't cut in unsafely. Uh, if you're driving in areas where there are is uh, the possibility for occlusion, you know, pedestrians or other vehicles that might be hidden behind other objects, drive cautiously. So these are concepts that human drivers learn uh, are the foundation to what it means to drive safely as a human. And so we formalize these human-centered concepts of good driving behavior in mathematical equations and logical rules to make those interpretable by a machine. 
So we think the origin in, in commonly accepted safe driving practices for humans is a great way for humans to understand why the vehicle uh, is going to be a much better driver than a human and why it's going to make safe driving decisions. It's a great step for the industry and it's a great step for the general public. But then on the other side, you have government. We have a new we have a new administration with uh, President Biden. So I have to ask you, how is Intel preparing for possible new regulations on autonomous vehicles? You're taking an incredible leadership perspective in the private sector but then on the other side we had the government perspective any thoughts on that yeah first uh we, we're absolutely looking forward to working with the new administration um as it uh, unveils its new priorities and and a regulatory agenda uh relating to automated vehicles um NHTSA recently published an advanced notice for proposed rulemaking that uh, asked for public comment uh, about what kind of safety assurance framework um uh, should should the regulator be considering what elements of the automated vehicle um should be uh, considered for performance standards that might be part of some future rulemaking or, or regulatory process. And so we definitely look forward to providing input on that and being a partner uh, to collaborate with government. Um, government plays an important role uh, in this question of how safe is safe enough. Uh, when you talk about these uh, reasonable worst case assumptions, at the end of the day, you have to pick a number, a value that represents that assumption. For example, when you're following another vehicle, what should you assume is its maximum deceleration capability? Is it a global worst case that's a race car? Well, if you do that, you're going to have really long following distances. Automated vehicles are going to contribute negatively to traffic flow, and they're going to drive everyone crazy on the road and not get you to where you need to go. Or do you pick something that's more of a balance? It's a reasonable assumption that uh, is a natural following distance that's still much safer than humans, but you've got a non-zero chance still that you might have a collision if that car in front of you were to break at a level beyond what you were assuming. Uh, and so at the end of the day, what, what happens here is you have to pick a value that represents a balance, a balance between acceptable risk and usefulness of the system, of the transportation network. And government actually does this all the time today. Uh, when a new road is built, the government picks a value that's the speed limit. Uh, you know, if you wanted to ensure perfect safety and eliminate all fatal traffic accidents in the entire country, um, the government would set the maximum speed limit on all roads to 10 miles per hour. It'd be incredible for safety, right? So shouldn't we do it? You know, why don't we do it? Well, it's because uh, what, what, what would be the cost? A loss of efficiency and usefulness of our transportation network. And so the speed limit is a great example of a number the government picks that represents a balance between acceptable risk and usefulness and practicability of the transportation system. So just in that same way, uh, industry and government need to work together to understand what should these same values be for automated vehicles to use inside their safety models. Um, and this is uh, uh, one of the things that the IEEE 2846 standard is, is working on. We can probably talk about that later. Huh. Expanding upon that, new head of DOT, new presidential administration. What new major changes do you see possibly coming to the autonomous vehicle industry? Well, certainly what we look forward to um, is an active partner. Um, I think industry is ready and willing to engage and partner with government. The technology is maturing. Uh, companies are starting to do early advanced deployments. Uh, certainly by 2022, we expect the possibility of wide-scale deployment um, of this life-saving technology, but only if we have uh, some regulatory clarity uh, and guidance from government on how these vehicles should behave and what does safety mean and how do you measure it. 
so we absolutely look forward to working with, together with government to uh, close some of these gaps so that we can bring this technology to the citizens of uh, not just the U.S., uh, but the world. What about on the, the ADAS front, as the technology becomes more and more advanced and available in, in more vehicles, do you see driver monitoring systems becoming a requirement at some point? Yes, for sure. And in fact, there's been some really exciting developments on the ADAS front. Um, what, uh, what we've realized is that um, historically, people think about automated driving and driver assistance systems as two totally different things. They're different teams, different organizational structures, different technologies. Uh, we actually look at it as a continuum of the same functionality and the same capability uh, for the car to operate itself uh, in a variety of different uh, places. The only difference being, does the system require human oversight, meaning it's a driver assistance system, or does the system uh, have the ability to operate without human oversight? And that would obviously be our you know, traditional self-driving vehicle. But underneath that, the capabilities could be the same in terms of the car's ability to take you to anywhere you'd like to go. Pick a point, pick your destination, and off the car goes. But in, in an advanced driver assistance system, you're still providing that human oversight of, of the car's operation. And so in that case, um, you know, with the system like Supervision uh, that's coming from Mobileye, which has 360 degree vision, has the same chips that are inside of our uh, fully autonomous test vehicles, um, it, you know, that car has that same capability, but it still needs the human to provide oversight. And that's where uh, uh, driver monitoring systems come in. Uh, and we agree that, you know, Euro NCAP and others are starting to require some form of driver monitoring system as a basic functionality. Uh, to be in these new new vehicles, and we're we're absolutely supportive of that effort, and are and are in the process of enabling that with our IQ platforms, and so uh, we definitely think that these premium systems that provide 360 degree vision and advanced driver assistance things are going to be a differentiator to OEMs, and driver monitoring systems are absolutely part of that system. It's going to be a differentiator because you're taking a potential hard drive situation and you're making it safer to the best because you're giving the driver all the tools that they need to help have a safer driving environment. But on the other side of that, you've got, I call them bad actors or inappropriate actors, any term you want to use. And they document things on TikTok and YouTube. And there was a famous video that this person thought it was funny to put his car on, on high version of ADAS and go take a nap in the back while it drove down the highway. It's, it's, you should be arrested because you're, you're, you're putting the not just your own life in danger, but the lives of so many individuals around you in danger that we're traveling on that road. Is there a very gentle way to explain to these individuals that your version of ADAS is not an autonomous vehicle? It's not meant to drive itself. It's, me it's meant to be driver assist where you're supposed to be fully engaged, not take a nap in the trunk. Yeah, and that you know, if you think about the origins of our, our brand name for our, our most advanced driver assistance system is called Supervision, which kind of works both ways. You've got both got 360 degree vision uh, for the car in the form of cameras, but also the system itself still needs to be supervised, you know, by the human driver uh, because it augments the driving experience. And that same safety model RSS that we were talking about before that was originally designed for fully automated vehicles is active in the supervision system while you are driving. And so, you know, it's the, it's the whole mindset of this makes you a safer driver by protecting you while you are driving, you know, while you are supervising the system. Um, just from a mindset standpoint, really underscores our, our belief that, that these 
our driver assistance systems uh, and, and should be used as such. You mentioned earlier in the podcast about uh, the fender bender incident. How do we ensure that an incident like that doesn't happen again? And that, for example, somebody happens in an ADAS and the media and all these headlines say, self-driving car got an accident. And you and I both know, and then the industry know that that was an ADAS vehicle. It was not a self-driving vehicle. What can we do to ensure that that one headline or multiple headlines does not destroy an entire industry that will benefit millions of individuals around the world? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think um, the first thing is, is, is we've got to get alignment um, and clarity on, on what does it mean for these vehicles to operate safely? Um, you know, because if you, if you set that high bar together as an industry, working collaboratively on standards and with government that provides regulatory guidance, then it becomes very clear, you know, who isn't following best practices. Uh, and who is who is the bad actor versus who are the group of companies that are really working responsibly uh, to do the right thing in the right way. And so that's why we've been so focused on on enabling, uh, contributing to and leading consensus driven industry standards so that as an industry together, we can set a high bar so that when new entrants come in, they know the bar they need to meet uh, if they want to be uh, recognized as following industry best practices. You're also setting the bar high through the Mobileye testing program. You recently expanded Detroit, Paris, Shanghai, and Tokyo. I like that they're different dense urban environments, different cultures and customs. When I saw it, I was like, okay, something big's going on here and they're, and they're super savvy. Why were, were these cities and countries chosen? Well, first, um, we look for places that are they're not easy to test, you know. Uh, there's no, <laughs> that's, that's, there's not a lot of point in testing on uh, in places where you've got nice, big, wide open roads with not a lot of other people or cars or traffic signals or complex intersections or whatever. Uh, that doesn't prove anything. So we like going to places where uh, it's difficult and it's hard, and we can prove out the technology and make it as robust as possible. Uh, what we also, though, uh, have in common with those cities, if you, if you take a look, is that that's where our customers are. Um, you know, we're, we're fortunate to have um, almost 60 million cars on the road, dozens of different uh, OEMs, um, dozens of different uh, vehicle models. And our customers are based in places like Detroit, like Shanghai, you know, and Tokyo and Paris. And so we want to put our test vehicles where our customers are so that we've got a ready opportunity to, to show off the technology uh, to our customers. Um, and, you know, the thing about this is that there's also, I think, unique about the fact that we've gone to so many different cities and different countries all at the same time is because of our mapping technology that allows us to do that. Uh, most companies have to send out advanced mapping fleets of vehicles. It takes months and months and months to kind of generate the map before you could operate anywhere. Uh, we crowdsource our maps from cars that humans drive. So we have maps of the world, mostly, where anywhere humans have been driving. And so we can put cars into a new city uh, and start testing in a matter of days because we've already got those places mapped. Just kind of an illustration of how we can scale. Crowdsourced maps. you got to dive into that because it seems that, it's, it's a, in my opinion, it's a competitive advantage to you there. Could you dive a little more into that? Because I'm really fascinated by it. Yeah, sure. It's, uh, it's really fascinating. The... It's worth thinking about the traditional way that maps are created, uh, and that's with specialized mapping vehicles. They're typically LiDAR-based. Uh, you've got a small fleet of those. They're really expensive. Uh, and then you put more expensive engineers inside of those cars, and you drive them around and around and around. 
And then you get big hard drives full of data that you got to manually ingest back into a data center. And you repeat that process over and over and over again. In a matter of months, let's say, if you're lucky, you finally got a map. Okay, great. You know, and these maps are needed for automated vehicles and driver assistance systems if you want them to, to operate best. Uh, to operate in the world. They contain not navigational information, but information about the environment. Where are there static objects? Um, where, what is the width of the lane? What is the gradient or curvature of the road? Uh, and these things allow the automated vehicle to localize itself in the, in the physical world um, and navigate safely through the environment. And so the challenge with those traditional approaches is, is it's expensive and time consuming. And now you want to go to a new city. Well, you got to repeat that same process. Well, what about the map that you collected in the old city? Well, the moment you stop collecting data, the moment the map starts getting out of date, the world changes. New lanes are added. Lanes are turned into bike lanes. Lanes are removed. Uh, new intersections are added. New bridges are added. New old bridges are removed. You know, so, so the world changes. And so you've got to have a way to keep the map fresh uh, and up to date. And so uh, we, we considered this challenge um, and recognized that, you know what, we've got a fleet of vehicles driven by consumers every day uh, through our driver assistance systems. Why not we take advantage of that and crowdsource the map with the cameras that are behind your mirror that are doing driver assistance functionality for you? So if you've got a, a newer vehicle from, from Volkswagen, from Nissan, from, from BMW, uh, and more uh, that have our uh, latest generation driver assistance system in it, when you're driving around, your vehicle is contributing information about the environment. It's completely anonymized, of course. Uh, and so, uh, but what it allows us to do then is collect every day millions of kilometers of mapping data uh, from humans driving on every road. And this is really key when we think about long term, this transition from, you know, automated, uh, you know, robo taxis or something to consumer automated vehicles, which is if you have a car and you own that car, you expect you can drive it anywhere you want to drive it. Right. And so if that car has automated driving functionality, true kind of level four type functionality, you should expect that it's going to be able to take you anywhere you want to go or anywhere you could drive yourself. But that's only possible if you've got all roads mapped. And so what's the best way to map all roads? Use the humans that are driving on all of those roads today. And so that's how REM, our Roadbook Experience Management uh, mapping product works. Um, and it's live, it's working, and it's making driver assistance systems better today. You hit the nail on the head with Geofenced. If your favorite restaurant that you like to go to on a date night or, or a special night or you like to frequent, it's out of the Geofence, you're not a happy person. You wanna be able to go to your favorite restaurant. Or if your child's school is out of the geofence, you want to be able to take your child to that school. And so you're right. When, when robo-taxis eventually scale, geofences are not going to work because consumers are going to want to go where they want to go, when they want to go, part of their normal everyday routines. And building upon that, what are some of the biggest learnings that you've taken away from these different cities, uh, from testing and interacting with different cultures and different governments? Has there been anything that's really stood out to you and said, wow, we really learned something interesting that we didn't know before? Well, I'd say I think the first thing that's important is, um, and, and you said it well, which is this this concept that the technology would be geofenced and only available to a select few uh, just doesn't sit right with us, you know, from an equity standpoint, uh, from, uh, you know, shouldn't all people benefit equally from this life-saving technology? And just because you happen to live in a 
city versus in a rural area doesn't mean that one uh, kind of person should be uh, advantage over the other in that regard. So we think really that this technology has to be available to everyone uh, and it's got to operate in all areas. And so that's part of why we test in so many different places at the same time, but also part of why our mapping technology works the way it does as well. So because we won't be most of these geofence concepts is, is because it's a limitation of the map. It's because that's the only area that's been mapped. But we're mapping rural roads just as much as we're mapping urban roads. So I think that's an important, an important element of this. Um, it is interesting to think about uh, the difference in driving style, though. Uh, we were talking about safety earlier. And you know, driving safely is really kind of a human concept because driving safely means something very different to a person in China versus somebody who lives in the U.S. Uh, or somebody... Uh, who lives in Italy is going to think very different about what, what it means to drive safely than driving in, in Switzerland or Germany, right? <laughs> so, so driving is cultural, and the way that we drive is cultural. Um, and so the interesting thing about the mapping technology that, we're, that we have is it's collecting not just the kinds of information that we talked about earlier in terms of the lane widths and how high the curbs are, and where there are street signs and traffic signals and things like that, but it's also collecting semantic information about how people drive. Uh, so we know, you know, regardless of what the posted speed limit is, what's the typical speed people usually drive on this road? We know that, well, the line for the stop sign might be here, um, but humans typically stop and then they inch forward so they can see around an occlusion. We know that in this unprotected left turn intersection, you know, this is the this is the the part in the middle of the intersection where human drivers typically sit and wait, you know, to, to take their opportunity. So this semantic information about how people drive is really fascinating. Um, and we're collecting all that as well as part of that map information. And so what that allows us to do is have our car sort of drive like a local then you know so when we put a car in a new environment this semantic information about how people drive in these different countries can be incorporated into how the vehicle operates which we think is really important for consumer acceptance because you know you're going to want these cars driving next to you to drive like you do and to be able to negotiate with them in traffic just like you would with another human so you know in a way it's sort of a, a turing test for automated vehicles is can you tell that other vehicle you're negotiating with is actually a human or a machine you know, and our goal would be that you can't tell the difference. You you want the vehicle to to blend in, and you mentioned culture, so I have to ask you. You grew up in a in a car household. Mm -hmm. Your father was a car nut. What happens to car culture with a fully autonomous vehicle? Does that become autonomous vehicle car culture? How do you see that culture evolving, or does car culture? Um, live in augmented reality or a, or a VR in the future. Where do you see that going? Yeah, it's a good question. It's uh, I've heard the joke that um, you know people didn't stop riding horses uh, when the horseless carriage was introduced. <laughs> we just moved them to special tracks. So uh, I don't know. Uh, there's always going to be race tracks for sure. But uh, I did grow up in a car family, so I love cars. Uh, I love to drive. Driving's fun, um, but not all the time. 
<laughs> there's a lot of driving that's mundane, that's boring, that's annoying, that is frustrating, that just is a loss of time and productivity and whatever. And I'm not going to miss driving at those times. Um, so we'll see how it pans out. Um, I, I hope we'll, you know, we're going to have human drivers still around for quite a long time. So we're going to have many decades, I think, of coexistence. And so I think we'll all get to the opportunity to still drive perhaps when we want to. But when we do, because of these more advanced driver assistance systems, we're going to be even better drivers than we are today. And we're going to be perhaps almost just as safe as a driverless vehicle, even though we're still driving. So I think that's uh, that's an interesting prospect to think about um, for the future of human-driven cars. Speaking of interesting situations, your father loves cars. Have you ever put him for a ride in, in an autonomous vehicle and take, taken him around? And if so... What was he like? Well, I just love to know what the reaction was. No, I unfortunately haven't had the opportunity to do that. Um, he lives out of state in a, in a retirement community, which would be a, a perfect place really for an autonomous vehicle if you think about it. Um, but I, we have done some interesting studies with humans, um, people, I should say, that we pulled off the street from all walks of life. Uh, and we did a study a couple of years ago to try to understand what do they think about autonomous vehicles? And, and, and this question of trust, which I think is so interesting because trust is a human emotion. If you look up the dictionary def definition of trust, it talks about a belief in the character or strength or truth of something. And so when we think about asking the public to trust a machine, you know, those are attributes we don't often think about with our, our devices or our computers. Um, and so establishing trust, I think, is a really important concept that we need to think about. And so when we brought people in, uh, you know, we interviewed them before the study and we asked them all these questions about what do you think about the technology? And most people were nervous because it was the unknown and they'd never been exposed to it before. And then we put them in an autonomous vehicle um, and we drove them around and then we interviewed them afterwards and we said, well, what did you think about it? And it's like, well, it was actually kind of boring, like, you know, because the drive was so sort of safe and, and ordinary that they very quickly became not fearful, but just bored and wanted something else to do while we were driving them around. Um, and so what it says to us is that exposure, to your point of your question, exposure to this technology is really important. Uh, and as an industry, we've got to look for more opportunities to, to give the general public an opportunity to experience the technology and to go for a ride. Uh, and we also believe that the introduction of more advanced driver assistance systems, as people start by turning their cars over, right, and buying new cars, they're going to get that introduction in the cars that they're still driving. Um, and so we think all of that's going to be important um, to, uh, to building that trust uh, and hopefully making even the biggest car nuts in the world, like my dad, uh, excited about this technology rather than afraid of it. Public trust is, the, in my opinion, the biggest hurdle to get over. Intel and the engineers will build an incredible car that will get individuals there safely. Yourself will work with other individuals and government will get healthy regulation. But without public trust, this whole thing's collapsed. And, and years ago, SAE did SAE demo days. And same thing, we would we would interview the individual before and after the ride, and we got a lot of the boring ones. But there was this one just incredible uh, individual that came out of the vehicle, and she had the biggest, biggest smile in the world. And she comes over to us, and she, I said, how was your ride? And she goes, it was smooth. 
just like a Cadillac. This was smooth. <laughs> Love it. And she had such enthusiasm. She's like, can I go again? And, it, and we did that in Detroit. It was this, these overwhelming, um, inc- incredible things that we had happen. We had individuals drive over 800 miles uh, to come go for a ride. And when the public got to see the vehicle and, and meet engineers and talk about it, they fell in love with the product. And hopefully we can get more individuals in vehicles as this technology matures and to build that public trust. But one of the big moves that I see happening in the mobility sector is Intel. You're making big moves. You you acquired Mobileye in 2017, then 2020 you acquired MoveIt. What's the overall strategy? Are you putting all the pieces together to build the complete autonomous vehicle service? Uh, in short, we are, uh, but we're also still following the traditional path as well. So what these moves are all about, uh, like move it, no pun intended, um, <laughs> is to is to fill out the capability stack so that we can offer a solution uh, to the market um, that is suited to what that market needs. Um, our OEM customers remain incredibly important to us, um, and so we will continue to offer uh, driver assistance and full self-driving systems, uh, self-driving computers to them uh, for their uh, vehicles. Um, but also in some markets, maybe it works better for us to provide the vehicle uh, to a public transit operator uh, and through the Move It service be able to buy one ticket uh, that takes you from a bus to a train to an automated car on the last mile to your home. Uh, or maybe it makes sense for us in some country if there isn't a well-established uh, mobility as a service um, for consumers, you know, we can offer that through the, the Move It app or anything in between. And so the idea is really as a company to be able to make sure that we can deliver this technology to all the different value chains um, uh, that might exist uh, if for all the different paths to market that this technology might take. Is one of those paths eventually moving into the movement of goods? Yeah, you know, if anything, uh, what COVID has uh, taught us is that uh, movement, we're all we're much more tunely, uh, or sorry, excuse me, we're all uh, much more aware of the importance of, of the ability to move and get goods uh, as we continue to shop online, um, as uh, seniors look for opportunities to get their prescriptions delivered without having to go out into public spaces, you know, because you don't want to get exposed. And so I think we're going to see a lot more interest in the movement of goods um, uh, moving forward. Um, at the end of the day, the underlying technology uh, to move goods versus people uh, isn't fundamentally different. Um, so we feel like we're well positioned to, to offer that technology to, uh, to whatever is being moved around inside that vehicle. How about into autonomous trucking, which is probably one of the hottest segments of the market now? Is there plans to scale into that? Uh, yeah, nothing uh, publicly announced, but I, I think what we will say is that um, there's a lot of opportunity to make human uh, truck drivers safer. Uh, and we have an entire product line that's focused on that. Uh, we have an aftermarket product line that can be attached to existing trucks, fleets of vehicles, delivery trucks, you know, postal service trucks, whatever, um, that make human drivers better by providing alerts and warnings. Um, and so uh, we're going to still have human-driven uh, transportation systems for quite some time, and that's why it's important to make sure we have the opportunity to make them as safe as we can. And what is combining this whole conversation what is the future of autonomy and, and what role do you see Intel playing in that? Well, I think the, the future of autonomy, I hope, is, is millions of lives saved. Um, at the end of the day, that's what this is all about. Um, as we talked about earlier, it's just, it's just tragic. It's just, we've become numb to it. But if you take a moment and think about it, it's just horrible, you know, how many people 
lose their lives every day around the world because of humans behind this product, you know, driving these cars. And so what I hope the future of autonomy represents more than everything else, anything else is life saved. We also have the opportunity, I think, to transform people's lives. Um, I think about the opportunity to provide mobility um, uh, to people who can't drive today. Um, for whatever reason, because uh, and and the opportunity to provide mobility to get to work, to go to school, uh, to go to the groceries, and have that freedom of mobility um, for people um, who don't have the ability to drive themselves or aren't able to uh, is really going to transform people's lives. And uh, we'll see long term what the societal effects are on on our transportation system and the network as it's defined. Um, you know, the transportation network as it exists today was built around humans behind the wheel of these of these cars, you know, so it's exciting. It'll be exciting to see how cities and, and roads are transformed long term. But above all, I think it, it's safety at the end of the day that I hope is the most important thing that the industry brings. The, f- the future is exciting. Safety is, is paramount. And as we look to wrap up this extremely insightful conversation, what would you like our listeners to take away with them? Would it be that Intel's absolute immense pride and safety and doing right by society or, or what is that that you would like the listeners to take away from because we've covered a, a lot of ground here i think the biggest thing is, is certainly our commitment to safety but that we believe safety is something um that should not be proprietary uh, we think the safety of these devices and creating public trust in the technology requires transparency requires honesty and openness about how the technology works and what its limitations are. And as we said before, if if the only goal is a perfect automated vehicle that will never be involved in a collision of any kind, then we'll never deploy the technology. So let's have open and honest conversations, though, about how safe is safe enough, how can we measure and assess it, and disclose how the technology works. Don't hide behind a black box of AI and say it's a magic secret. I can't even explain it, even if you ask me to. That's not a good way to engender public trust. So we've really been committed to openness and transparency. It's why we published our safety model in 2017. It's why we're leading safety standards like IEEE 2846. And it's why we're openly talking about it with folks like you um, and with the governments uh, around the world so that we can collaborate on what does safety mean so that we can have the support of public uh, and governments around the world uh, for the deployment of the technology. And Jack, we, we thank you so much for your, your leadership in this issue. And as we've heard on this podcast, Intel is doing good by society and building trust in autonomous vehicles. And Jack, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the SE podcast today. My pleasure. It's been an honor to be here. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Tune in next week to hear from Riley P. Brennan, General Partner, Trucks Venture Capital, as we discuss trends in mobility from an investor's perspective. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.